Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at the uh, story of Korach. Um, it is actually two stories that uh, are put together in our text. It is um, the story of a rebellion by Korach, uh, and they are opposing um, the leadership of Moshe and Datan and Aviram, who challenged the authority of Aharon, of Aaron. Uh, and these two stories of rebellion get put together into one story in our text. But they really read as like kind of two really different narratives that are put together, just like the flood story, right? We get two two different flood narratives put together. Um, we're not going to focus, because we're uh, in a different part of the uh, triennial cycle, we're not going to focus on the actual rebellion part, um, but we need to review it in order to understand the part that we're going to be at. So we have, um, just for argument's sake, to make it um, more expedient, we're going to talk about all all three of them together. Korach, Datan, and Aviram are agitators. Um, they, uh, if you'll recall, they challenge Moshe and Aharon. And what is the great challenge that Korach brings? What is what does Korach base his challenging of Moshe's authority on? Do we remember? That everybody is uh, equal. Thank you, Reuben. That if all of the people are holy, using God slash Moshe's words against him, if all of the people are holy, he says, why do you lift yourself up above the congregation of Israel? Right? The Edah. You told us we're a nation of priests, like we're all we're all holy. And so how come you lift yourself up, Moses, above all the people? So this is one of one of Korach's arguments. Um what is Korach's standing in this? He is a priest, right? So he's from the tribe of Levi, he is a Kohen, and it turns out he is related to Moshe. And his father is Moshe's father's older brother. So in a society where the firstborn male gets everything, right, usually gets the patriarchy, except in our stories where that gets flipped on its head, of course, all the time, um, then Korach's father really, in some ways, outranks Moshe for the kehuna, for the priesthood, and for leadership, uh, and Aaron, for that matter, right? So, so Korach has some standing, and Korach has a point. So the big question always becomes, you know, what is the issue? What's the problem that leads to the huge disaster we see at the end, right? The huge punishment um, that we see at the end. Um, to, and for another podcast, we delve very deeply into the, the midrashic and uh, exegetical tradition around that. Let's just summarize and say, um, they whip up 250 leaders of the people. Moshe needs to have a categorical right proof that he and Aaron are indeed the designated leaders. So he says, fine, you all want to serve God? Fine. You all want to do what Aaron does? You want to oust me? Fine. You 250 people and Korach, y'all go get your fire pans. What is the fire pan for? Which offering? The incense offering. Burnt offerings, right, are on the altar. The incense, you put hot coal from the altar in the fire pan, and then you put incense on top of it, and it turns the incense into smoke, and it is the smoke that is the offering, right? Reach nichoach, from the sacrifices goes up, right, a, a pleasing odor to God. So the incense, the, the offering is the, the cloud of yumminess that goes up. Go get your 250 fire pans. We'll see tomorrow morning, right? Shoot out at the OK Corral. We'll see tomorrow um, who God wants to be God's priests. So they 
They are each to make this incense offering, Aharon and the 250 folks. And what happens when the 250 folks bring their fire pan and bring their offering? Y'all, what happens when somebody brings an offering that is not proper? Thank you, Lisa. (laughs) So they are, they are, do you remember Nadav and Avihu? What happened with Nadav and Avihu? They are incinerated. They are consumed. That's what happens to the 250. They are incinerated. It seems Korach survives that episode. We don't know how. Um, but um, because he gets swallowed up later. So, And then all their followers, at the very end, the earth opens and pfft, swallows everybody that was involved, including their wives and little ones. So danger of association. So, um, all right. So that's what, that's what happens. The people, as you can imagine, are flipping out. Right, as they watch 250 of their leaders get burned up, and they see so many people swallowed by the ground alive, like go they go down alive. So it's it's just I mean, being a child of Hollywood, right? I can like imagine right how a director would do that scene, right? The screaming, the wailing, the terror, the right. It's just it's just imagine on the big screen with Dolby surround sound, right? The absolute catastrophe that happens um, at the end of this. So in one sentence, tell me, Ruben. Is, I'm saying that all this happened in one sentence. And the fire went forth from Adonai and consumed the 250 representatives offering the incense. That's the whole story. You, you imagine what uh, a, uh, a director would do, right? So one one sentence there, but then there's sentences about the earth opening and swallowing all these other people. Um, all right, so so that's that's the the story in a nutshell. We're going to start at the part we don't usually talk about. We often spend a lot of time talking about Korach and talking about the rebellion and talking about what goes on and talking about why and what was the actual sin and 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 and. We're not going to go there today. We're going to start at the aftermath. So we're going to turn to chapter 17 and read at verse 1. Somebody begin. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Order Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, to remove the fire pans, for they have become sacred. From among the charred remains and scattered the coals abroad. Remove the firepans of those who have sinned at the cost of their lives, and let them be made into hammered sheets as plating for the altar. For once they have been used for offering to Adonai, they have become sacred, and let them serve as a warning to the people of Israel. Eleazar the priest took the copper firepans which had been used for offerings by those who died in the fire. And they were hammered into plating for the altar, as Adonai had ordered him through Moses. It was to be a reminder to the Israelites, so that no outsider, one not of Aaron's offspring, should presume to offer incense before Adonai and suffer the fate of Korah and his band. Okay, we're getting the same reference here that that these fire pans burned up in a in a right because of this fire that wasn't supposed to happen, right? So Eish Zarah, like with Nadav and Avihu, right? The same idea holds here. You go into a nuclear facility and you haven't made sure everything is properly prepared. What happens is you die of the radiation, right? That it, That's not the nuclear power's fault, right? You, you have to come prepared or that power kills you if you harness it correctly it can bring heat it can bring light it can bring right all kinds of of things and this is all attributed to god right god's power is the same the the force that is yudhe vave is the same operates the same way 
that it is what it is. And if you don't come with your hazmat suit or your you know nuclear suit, having done all the things you need to do to contain it and and harness it and have it be in the world in a good way, it will incinerate everything in its path. So this is just like Nadav and Avihu. We've had lots of discussions about what that might be about, but that is what we're dealing with here. Let's look at this interesting, um, this interesting command. God speaks to Moshe and says that Aharon should should take the fire pans. Why? Why should Aaron go get the fire pans? Because they are what? They're holy. They're kadosh. How are they kadosh? Didn't they just get used for, in a way, avodah zarah? Right? Worship that's not mandated by God? Why are they kadosh? Okay. Why? But they got zapped. Ah, ah. Linda suggests that it has something to do with their faith. And as Lisa said, it's still technically the kind of offering that God asked for. God did, in fact, ask for the offering. With Nadav and Avihu, God did not. Neither did Moshe. This is one of the interpretations of why Nadav and Avihu get consumed with Eish Zarah. What made their Eish Zarah, what made their fire Zarah strange, foreign? Is it nobody asked for it? You can't choose to celebrate Hanukkah with a tree in your living room. Sorry, you don't get to decide that, right? So that that's what made it Zarah. God actually asks for this offering. So some scholars go to that, that they, they really believe they are serving as priests. They listen to God's command to show up with their fire pans. I just made the wrong mixture. <laughs> no, they weren't qualified. They, they are not qualified. And so God says, you want to take the risk? Gesundheit. Mm-hmm. Come on. Let's go. You you really want to challenge who's the one who's supposed to be doing this? That's fine. You have every right to do that. Bring your fire pans and we'll see. Okay? So if you're not the ones who are supposed to bring it, guess what happens? It's a bad bet. But it doesn't change the fact that it was the proper offering and possibly even a positive intention. To be close to God and to want to serve God. Just a clarification. God asked for an offering but didn't specify who should make it? Or God asked these people to make the offering and then... These are the ones challenging Moses and Aaron's authority and their right to serve, Aaron's right to serve as the priest. So God's saying make an offering to them. Okay, good. God forbid. He's not trying to entrap them into... Well, well, one could charge a just God with a bit of a setup here. Yeah. Couldn't one? That's what I'm trying to clarify. Because I was, was it general asked to whomever wants to try? So, so they, they've already... Ch- so I think it's important what you're asking, Laura. They've already showed up to say, who do you think you are? They've self-identified 250 leaders who got sucked in by Korach and Datan and Aviram. So they've already self-declared as challengers. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I think that's an important piece. It isn't anyone who wants to bring an offering and we'll see what happens. It's we've declared that y'all don't have a right. We challenge Right? So what do you do? Moshe says, nah, nah, well, right? So what, I mean, it's a longer story. Obviously, if we were studying that part of the story, we would be studying much longer about what's going on in that scene. It comes down to how, 
how are Moshe and Aaron supposed to deal with a mob that's ready to have a coup? Right? There's lots of ways God could have solved that. A plague, you know, like we're used to seeing that. You know, we're used to seeing lots of ways of shutting stuff down. It seems that God wants another message to be sent. Robert. Well, yeah, but, who, but who's being challenged? Is, is the challenge really to Moshe and Aaron or is it to God? So, so it depends how you read it. Lots of folks, right, especially our Mepharshim, our commentators want to read it, that they do in fact challenge God and so get what they deserve. Other folks suggest if these fire pans are kadosh, aren't they really trying to serve God? They're just completely misguided about... In other words, what if they don't believe God is talking to Moshe and Aharon? Then... Isn't it a fair challenge to say, we want to serve God? Of course, our commentators point to the fact that, excuse me, they have seen God act through Moshe and Aharon enough that they should know better. And that that therefore it is obvious that this is a selfish, ego-driven challenge and that does undermine God and God's chosen emissaries. Or they could say that they think, back, back a little, they think that Moses and Aaron are maybe raising themselves up too much. and that they're, So they are questioning that God's speaking through them, but it seems that it's not, it's, it's not that they're saying, you know, we don't, yes, by, if, if they're questioning Moses and Aaron, okay, then necessarily they're questioning God, but really they're, they're saying, well, you, you guys are trying to raise yourself up higher than everybody else. We want to serve God too. So it seems pretty harsh of God. There is a verse in there um, that says, where it's Moses who says, I haven't taken anything of theirs. Not an ass, not a chicken. You know, I haven't taken anything of theirs at all. What does that imply? I guess that he's not trying to be some ruler like a king would take taxes or something. So Moshe's statement implies there's something we've lost in the text, that he's being charged with corruption. That that there's something missing. And so he must have been accused. They're being accused of corruption. So maybe not being challenged that they're God's spokespeople, but being challenged that over and above the things they're supposed to be doing, they're doing some funny business on the side. All right. In any case, what I find fascinating is that the fire pans are considered kadosh. So what does God say? All right, Aaron, go collect the fire pans, right? Because they are kadosh. All right, that would make sense. All right, they're if they're kadosh, if they really truly have been used in an offering to Yudhe Vavhe, and they are considered now set aside, remember, kadosh doesn't mean holy. That's a that's an English word that really doesn't get at the meaning. They are set aside. They are designated now. Now you can't use them for regular. You can't use them as shovels now. No, they're sacred. They're sacred. They've been set aside now for divine purposes, right, or relationship with the divine. Um all right, fine. So go collect them. Put them away somewhere. You put them in, you know, un- in the storage under the pews on the right over here. Not what happens. What is he told to do with them? So hammer them thin. Right? So it's kind of like tinfoil, you know, a little thicker, but right? It's plating. And it's going to be thin enough that you can work with it. And you're going to shape it to be a cover for the altar. <clears throat> so their, their casting was not for naught. That it's a state, it remains a symbol. Ah. Or, oh, interesting word there, Lisa. Interesting word. What is that word, symbol? Tikva. What is that word? Ot. Right? Oat. Where else do we see oat? 
todo mundo tem. Signs and wonders, right? So where do we, what are signs and wonders about? Atoto muftim, what is that about? Getting out of Egypt. Ah, so yeah, not just getting out of Egypt. What were the ototz? You mean the, no. the ten plagues? Can, betach. So in the, in the Exodus narrative, ototz, I will get, God says to Moshe, don't worry, I'll give you signs and wonders so they'll follow you, they'll believe you. What, uh, what did that translate into? Uh, hello. Plagues. Right? Okay. I mean, that's the word we use, but right? They, they really, it's a sign. The river turns, the Nile turns to blood. It's an oat. So sometimes oat is not so pleasant. Where do we have another oat? Otile olam. Tikva. Otile olam. I understand the word, but I don't know. <laughs> six, seven, six days God creates the world, and on the seventh day God rested. Therefore, the people of Israel shall observe the Shabbat. Otile olam. It is a sign forever. It is a symbol. Forever. Could it not only be a, a symbol like you're speaking about, but could be a negative symbol? Look what happened when they try to challenge. So, Linda's pointing to Lisa's suggestion that this is a symbol, and Linda's lifting up the fact that symbol cuts both ways. Ot in Hebrew, in, in our Hebrew, in our collection of right things associated with oat in this Torah um, it cuts both ways Shabbat is an oat and so were the plagues a little bit different than how we tend to think of symbol um, but I think some many ancient wisdom traditions were better at holding those things together the the positive and the challenge of an oat of a symbol they were terrifying at the same time that force could work on your behalf the the sphinx the I was going to say um, by destroying those pans maybe the idea was that nobody else could come and use the pans the same way repeat the whole mm-hmm. rebellion episode. Mm-hmm. So make sure they're not available to be used this way again, but they can't be used as shovels, and you can't melt them down into a roof for the social hall. They have to be used for a purpose that is kadosh. Interesting that it is the altar. I mean, what's the altar about? And so what is the altar in that sense? It's the place, it's not the place it's where everything a, gets incinerated, too. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Laura. It is the place living things, well, they're dead when they go on there, let's be clear, um, get incinerated. They get consumed by fire as a point of connection. And they are to be properly brought, properly prepared, incinerated in that fire and that is what affects keruv, right? That's why it's called a korban, right? It draws God close, it draws the offerer closer to God. Lahavdil, right? To be the opposite of what happened with Korach and that fire, right? That fire was all about what happens when you're not truly trying to draw close, you're trying to rebel, or lift yourself, make yourself more important. Make yourself more important. Take power. Take control. We're not exactly sure how to say this, but going back to what you originally said about um, saying, or I guess Ruben said it, that these 250 people were saying, I thought we were all equal. But even, I mean, we all know from other things we've been involved in that you have 250 plus people who are all equal, but you still need leadership. So there's several levels here. One is, are they saying 
we're all equal? Or are they saying, we are equal to you, therefore we should be the people who are the leaders? It's unclear. It's unclear. All right. Okay. So we'll, we'll live with this oath being, yes, both and. That when you see that altar and you're about to make your offering, remember what happens when you mess that up. Let it be a warning. Let that oat be a warning to you. And at the same time, right, the oat could be, you know, that I have true leaders. These are your proper and true leaders. And you have come to the right place, to the right priests to make a correct and good offering and the promise is there will be Keruv. There will be, right, I will be close to you because you have come to the right to the right folks. Why should anyone take that risk? (laughs) (laughs) They haven't had good examples. (laughs) You mean, you mean they haven't had an example of people taking that risk and coming out in a good place? (laughs) Blanche, why do people continue to rebel even when they have seen disastrous results for others who did the same? Barbara Tuffman called that a march to folly. A march to folly. What is it about the human condition or the human composition, the human spirit that leads us to march towards folly so often? Why do we go to war repeatedly if it doesn't have a history of working? Rita, I want you to hold hold that because you've lifted up something we're going to get to in the comment in the commentary I'm going to give you. This idea of violence as a solution, right? So, I mean it's obviously a rhetorical question, Blanche. You lift up a really good point. We just don't seem to get it. We just don't, right? We just don't get it. It's never gone well when they've challenged God, when they've challenged Moshe and Aaron. It's never gone well before. What made these 250 think, but for us, it's going to work, right? Just like our own children. They keep challenging you, even if they haven't had good results up to that point. Why does my daughter think this time I'm going to give in to the whining? It's never happened. It's never resulted in good things. The whining, guess what, continues. Everyone's always looking for the good mother. (laughs) Everyone is always looking for mama to affirm my worth and that I'm the best and I'm the closest to her. I don't think you're far off, Blanche, from exactly what's happening. Even though it hasn't gone well for anybody else, we, right, are special. And there's 250 of them. There's 250 of them. So they've convinced themselves, sometimes by sheer numbers, oh, if I'm in the majority, I must be right. You know, if there's a lot of us, we must be right. Right? Nazi Germany. May may have been the majority. Well, right? All right. So we're going to move on and hold because we have a whole nother one. All right. So do the people say, okay, message received. We will finally behave and come into line. Reuben is grimacing and shaking his head. It's just not to be. We're dealing with Jews. It's not to be. Verse 6. Reuben, read it. All right, so the people turn on Moses and Aaron and say, you did this. You've brought death on God's people. It's consistent with their previous thinking. It is consistent with their previous thinking. Absolutely. And a little bit 
cheeky in that now they're speaking of those 250 as God's people. You, Moshe and Aaron, have brought death and destruction upon yud hey vav people. Uh, so they're still challenging Moshe and Aaron's relationship to yud hey vav aren't they? If they're questioning that it's yud hey vav who did this, what, Moshe and Aaron all of a sudden have superpowers? What are they charging exactly? Very interesting. All right, go on, Reuben. When Moses? Moses and Aaron reached the tent of meeting, I spoke to Moses, saying, Remove yourselves. Remove yourself from this people? From this community? That I may annihilate them in an instant? Wow. Wow. This guy's getting it. They fell on their face. Should I go on? Yep. Then Moses said to Aaron, Take the fire pan. Put on it fire from the altar, add incense, and take it quickly to the community and make expiation for them. For wrath has gone forth from God, and the plague has begun. Aaron took it, as Moses had ordered, and ran to the midst of the congregation where the plague had begun among the people. He put on the incense and made expiation for the people. He stood between the dead and the living until the plague was checked. Those who died of the plague came to 14,700, aside from those who died on account of Korah. Aaron then returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting since the plague was checked. All right. So the people say, you two have now look what you've done. You've brought death and destruction to God's people. At this point, God's had it. Completely had it. Right? And says, move out of the way to Moses and Aaron, presumably. Right? Move out of the way. I'm done. Right? I'm I'm done. And about to annihilate the people. And Moshe and Aaron fall on their faces. Moshe is a quick thinker. Right? He knows once the divine wrath has been unleashed, there is nothing to do. Right? There's no time even to beg. Remember a lot of times he argues and begs and cajoles and, right, what will your reputation be, right, among all the other nations if you obliterate this people, right? There's no time. Moshe knows it's already started. God's wrath has already been unleashed and there's nothing even it seems God can do. Right? It's done. So Moshe says, quick, go get the fire, the thing that started this whole business, go get the antidote, right? So go get some of the poison, you know, but that works, right? How do we get inoculated, right? So go get the fire pan, bring it out, put incense on it and go. You need to go and make an offering a correct offering on behalf of the people as an expiation offering, right? So like an offering of, of, I'm sorry, on behalf of the people. You are the representative of the people. Only Aaron can do this. He is the representative of the people. He's the one who has Kadosh Ladonai on his forehead and the 12 tribes on his chest. He is the go-between so he takes the fire pan, he offers the incense, he stands right between where the plague was erupting and the people who had not yet been annihilated, touched by it, right? And it works. He stands between the living and the dead, and it works. And the plague stops. So God in that instance has to stop the plague. Because an offering has been made to atone for the people, to make expiation for them, and it seems that it is efficacious. You can see why so many people think that HIV was caused by sinning. We're getting it all over the Bible. Hmm? I mean, since time immemorial, people have had to explain 
illness and disease that they can't explain. Before you know there are bacteria in the world or virus or viruses, um, how do you explain it otherwise? It makes complete sense that these people only could understand that as somehow related to magic or the divine. How else do you explain it? There's little individual invisible bugs. <laughs> right. 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 Okay. So, right. That, no way. So that for me is forgivable and understandable. I don't mean to say forgivable. That sounds pejorative and judgy. Um, it's understandable. There's no excuse zero excuse in the scientific age for people choosing to believe, right, it is related in any way to sin. That's a choice. We know, we know even if they weren't sure how AIDS was communicated, they were very clear it was a virus. Uh, do you know what I mean? That, that to me is a completely different, yes, it's here. What, what else were they supposed to think? But today... That is absolutely a choice. Um, I I still can't get past why Yidhe Vavhe can't figure out a better way to communicate to the people who clearly are trying to be in relationship with Yidhe Vavhe but just have a problem with Moses and Aaron, that they're wrong without annihilating them. I mean, I know it's just, that's the story, okay, but... This Yidhe Vavhe obviously knows what's going to happen, right? This is an all-knowing God, so just kind of lets them go. Okay, I see. and it just seems so. What's so? Wait, wait, wait! Cool. Stop, stop, stop! You're, 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 you've got a lot going on there. All right, <laughs> I, well, let's unpack it. So, an an all-knowing God has knowing has nothing to do with control. Those are very different things. You just said God knows what's going to happen, and so lets them go. Away. Oh. Let's them. Well, we we have free will. And God has a choice whether to annihilate or say, "You're wrong. This is at, thank you for trying to be my people." Because I don't find it cheeky that they said you brought death upon Yehovah's people. Because they are. They all are. Right. They, they've already been selected and set aside from all the other people. So who? Oh, you mean the, the people, people Israel? Israel. Yes. Right, but so, but what they're saying to Moshe and Aaron is, y'all did this to God's people when it's in fact God who did this. So they're right. still not listening to the fact that God has just proven that Moshe and Aaron are God's spokespeople. And I guess what I'm thinking is, well, God clearly isn't communicating that well because you annihilate the first 250. <laughs> And they're not getting it, but God's going to just say, okay, I'm going to keep doing that really poorly, you know, they're, they're not getting this message. Let me just do that again, see if they get it this time. <laughs> All right, so, and part of me would probably completely support, and not that I don't support that, I mean, because, of course, as modern readers, we're like, ew, right? So, because this is not our theology and not a God that we would necessarily want to be in relationship to. So I affirm all, having affirmed all of that, if you if you turn back several partiot, what keeps happening? Is this really about God at this point? I'll bring you mana. I'll bring you water from the rock. I'll bring you quail. I'll bring you whatever. I'll drown the Egyptians. I take it, you know. On and on and on and on and on. And what do the people do? Always Turn on motion. <laughs> like, there's, they just don't. Get, how many times has God said to much? Stand back. Get, get, stand back. I'm getting ready to destroy them and I will make a great people out of you and motion. Right? So, time after time after time after time after time. And here we are again. So, I don't disagree. Okay, blowing up 250, that didn't work. Let's blow up more. Okay, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is, y'all don't seem to get it. Right? I can keep talking in the same tone of voice to my daughter until I reach a certain volume. And she's like, um, yes, ma'am. Right? Why does it take three or four requests before I blow my stack for her to finally listen? Because she knows. The threshold, you know, oh, we can live with that. Those two, those are 250 troublemakers, right? We can, we can live with that. They kind of deserve whatever. But you know, there, sometimes there's a 
volume that things have to get to before folks are ready to listen. Um, and I don't disagree that it, obviously it's not. Probably not even listening because it's not working. Mm-hmm. So complying, right? They're not compliant. They're oppositional defiant, right? Robert? I, I just sort of, you know, I keep reading this, we've seen this again and again, I just sort of go back to a naive belief, I guess, that look, this was 3,000 years ago, people wrote this, uh, sort of these, these teaching points, whoever was redacting this, mm-hmm. these teaching points that they wanted to get across, and they must, I guess, sophisticated discussion was not sort of in their vocabulary at that point in time. It had to be black and white or they thought they weren't going to get the point across. (laughs) They wanted to get the point across. Then they wanted to get the point across and I'm just thinking 3,000 years ago they didn't know how to be very um, they didn't know how to do it other than this way. So I, I agree. Our, our God concept has evolved. I think, though, that the story that they wrote was about timeless human tendencies That's to c- keep doing the same stuff, wondering why, when they bash their head against a brick wall, they get scraped up. Like what, you know, and so, in that sense, that part hasn't changed. The God part for us, of course, would be would be different, David. It just seems again, reading all, listening to all of the stories, that it seems that God just. I think it's earned. I mean, floods to all of this stuff. God just reacts and says, dummies, you just don't get it. I I think it's written by people who just don't get it. This is written by people who know we don't get it. But also are investing in the order. Correct. Who have some hope. Who have. That's right. That's right. I think that's true. I think it's written by people who get it that most people are stupid and don't get it, and they're very invested in supporting a system and a structure whereby we might be guided towards, right, our, our, or, or guided away from our usual inclination, which is to run after, right, what our eyes see and what our hearts lust after, as so the Shema tells us. Correct. We're all and guess who this is written, guess who this is written by? So, right. So yeah. their, their enlightened self-interest has created an environment that in a sense enforces a view that slavery is good. For the people, right, right you know, rather than have to actually work for what freedom means, right. yep. We don't just listen, follow orders, and you'll be fine. It's way easier, way easier. But they don't seem to want to follow Yudhevavhe's orders, and that's what really ticks God off, I think, a sure, lot. Because the punishment is so severe mm-hmm. that there's nothing else. There's like you'll listen, affirmative you'll listen and obey Pharaoh. Right. You're saying you want to go back to Egypt, so you'd obey Pharaoh and your taskmasters, but you can't obey Moshe and Ara, and you can't obey me, the force that liberated you from that. Really, really. Right. But is this, our discussion when I speak about modern Israel today, is that the same point that you're making here? They're still incapable as Jews, as a mass, of functioning in a productive capacity because it's not the human condition. The trouble is we don't have a Moses today to straighten it out. Well, the, the, so part of, yes, yes to part of what you said, no to the other part. So yes to, I think, the human condition is that left to our own devices... We tend to follow what we to go after what we want, not what we should 
do. And so all wisdom traditions, all ritual, all practice is about, at when it's good religion, that it's always about curtailing right, our inclination to go after what's not right and encouraging us to strengthen the parts of us that do what we should do and and our capacity to deny the things that we want that aren't good. That I think every wisdom tradition is about, and this is our wisdom literature. All right, let's let's finish this out because I, I want to get to this other oat, and then we'll look at the, um, some of the meaning of of all of it together. So, um, verse sixteen, Yudevafe spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the Israelite people and take from them, from the chieftains of their ancestral houses, one staff for each chieftain of an ancestral house, twelve staffs in all." So this is the response to the people not responding to the 250 being blown up, right? Turning on Moshe and Aaron, a plague erupts. Aaron stops the plague. It's not over. Something else has to happen, right? The people are flipping out. So God says, all right, here's what's going to happen. Take a staff from each of the chieftains, right, of the 12 tribes, Inscribe each one's name on his staff. There being one staff for each head of an ancestral house. Also inscribe Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. Deposit them in the tent of meeting before the pact where I meet with you. The staff of the candidate whom I choose to your point, Laura Diamond, shall sprout and I will rid myself of the incessant mutterings of the Israelites against you. Violence didn't seem to work. I blew them up. That didn't work. Then, right, God's wrath about that goes out and destroys a mess of people, right? Aaron stops it with expiation on their behalf. And now God seems to take a step back and hear what Laura says. And Okay, <laughs> time to rethink this. Vi- wiping them out doesn't seem to be working. Aaron effectively stopped that. And so now what? Take your staff, one from each of the ancestral houses, and let the one who is my designee, let that staff sprout life. Moses spoke thus to the Israelites, Their chieftains gave him a staff for each chieftain of an ancestral house, 12 staffs in all. Among these staffs was that of Aaron. Moses deposited the staffs before Yudhevafe in the tent of the pact. The next day Moshe entered the tent of the pact, and there the staff of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted. It had brought forth sprouts, produced blossoms, and born almonds. Moses then brought out all the staffs from before Yudhevafe to all the Israelites, each identified and recovered his staff. Yudhevafe said to Moshe, put Aaron's staff back before the pact to be kept as a lesson, right? So what, what is the Hebrew word for lesson, do you think? Oat. Let it be kept as an oat to rebels so that their mutterings against me may cease lest they die. This Moses did just as yod had commanded him, so he did. That's why I wanted to get through this part because I think it goes exactly to what Laura was saying that the other didn't work, 
So what happens now to a people who are skitty, skitterish and nervous and freaking out? Okay, so each one of you take your leaders, you know, each one of your ancestral houses, the 12 tribes, each of you put are going to put their name right on that staff. What is the staff made out of? <laughs> yes, wood. What kind of wood? What tree? We just saw. Amen. Thank you. The almond. Tubishvat. Why do we celebrate Tubishvat on the 15th? All right, we've been we've been studying together too long because she's like, it's the almond harvest. So, um, <laughs> generally, that would be the right answer. So, all the rain has fallen, and the sap is pulling up on the fifteenth of Shvat in Israel. The sap is pulling up into the almond trees. They are the first to blossom in Israel. Tigva ech omrim almond. Ah, singular. Shaked. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Those letters look familiar? Same letters. Rearrange the letters of Kadosh and you get Shaked. Almond. So... What is the proof that Aharon is in fact Kadosh Ladonai? Sedus is holy for God. The Shaked life is going to come from his Shaked branch and not from the others. Where else will we see the Tzitz, the bud, the, that'd be the, the blossom of the almond? Think, 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 think. It's in the Mishkan. I'll give you a hint. It's in the Mishkan. The menorah. The design of the menorah has the almond blossoms, right, on it. And also on the Kadosh Ladonai business, our tradition says, is the almond tzitz, is the almond flower um so this sign of life, this, now the Midrash says, if you look closely, his, look at verse 23, the end of the verse, Moshe goes in and behold, it had sprouted, right? It had brought forth sprouts, produced blossoms and born almonds. How would Moshe know that all those things had happened? Well, how could he see all three if the next morning there's already almonds? Exactly. There's almonds there. There had to be flowers. But where are they? Well, maybe they... So this happened They fall into the ground. So those those buds and flowers become the fruit. So how did he know that there were buds? Because there must have... Really? We're talking about God? We're talking about miracles? Really? There had to be flowers? Right? The Midrash goes crazy with this. And it says the real miracle was that the bud, the blossom, and the almond were all still there. That's what this means. That Moshe saw all, all three. That's the miracle of the Shaked here. Another one says, don't be silly. That's not the miracle. You can't have the, the blossom and the blah, blah, at the same time. right? It, the miracle is it happened overnight. That it wasn't just like, boom, almonds came. Psst, that would be silly. Like, no, there was a bud, and there was a blossom, and there were almonds, and it happened, boom, overnight. Time lapse, you know, photography-like. And that's the nace. That's the miracle. And that's, you know, how it becomes an oats. Um, so lots of wonderful traditions around that. Isn't this, isn't this a fixed game? I mean, after all, there's 12 choices, and how does uh, Aaron get chosen? Well, I mean, it wasn't just a random. God didn't just throw the dice and say, "How's it Well, no, of course, of course. So, so of course, we know and God knows whose staff is going to flower, but the people don't know. Yeah, they don't. 
they need another clearly not right clearly they're still challenging whether or not Moshe and Aaron are the spokespeople for Yudhei Vavhei so Yudhei Vavhei decides okay I'm not going to use death anymore that didn't seem to work it worked enough to give all the chieftains to make them all willing to try something different you know it wore them down because they have to be willing to say okay, it worked okay. enough to have them say okay Moshe we'll do that Right. So, so he had enough authority, given what's just gone on. You're saying he had enough authority that they complied, yeah. and 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 went along with his test schema. Right. Because you get you schematics. Get saying, who's going to be you know who's going to be team captain? I think we should do paper scissors drops. No, I think we should do bubble gum, bubble gum. And so they had to, okay. Let's go with Moses' idea. We'll all put our sticks in and see what happens. Fine. Moshe will, Moshe's they, idea. Then they have to accept it or not. Yeah, well, his is the only one that had a miracle happen right. to it, right? It would convince me. Right, but then again, I would have been convinced a lot earlier, I think. Um, drop down. <laughs> well, that's why I have my job and you have your job. All right, so drop down to where it says two reminders. Yeah? On You got this? Okay. So Rabbi Goldstein's teaching? All right. Two reminders in the face of the Israelites to stop their whining. The destroyed and misshapen fire pans, which had been almost melted by God and now get attached to the side of the tabernacle as a kind of weird decoration and warning at the same time. And the flowering staff of Aaron, which is the opposite, life itself, blossoming from hardship and symbolizing a leadership not weighed down by those who would rather yell than discuss, rebel than dialogue, overtake and convince and connive rather than democratically discuss, hear, and listen. Right? So he he's saying that the reason you have this possibility for leadership that's about life is because the 250 yeller, screamer rebels are gone. These are then, our Parsha suggests, two opposite ways of being in community. So flip that page over. The fire pan way of infighting and nitpicking and always questioning and being a negative influence, which literally, quote, melts down a community. Or the almond-bearing staff way, the flowering that results from constructive discussion, from the open-minded sharing of differing opinions, from the soul-searching that comes after a failed experiment, from the respect for leadership that good leadership engenders. I'm always working toward our community being the second kind. I hope you are too. I like that one. Yeah? We have a effect on relevance today in that I'm, the way we operate here compared to other congregations that I've been in. And this always seems to work better when everybody at least can say something. So you have a sense that KI is different from other communities? And how is that? What is? How do you think it's different? Well, I haven't been part of the board in a few years, but in those, when I was, I found that um, people were working towards the good of the congregation as opposed to themselves, and talking just to hear themselves speak and so forth. And I, and even um, at JRF, it was the same sort of thing. We weren't there because of all those reasons. We were there because we wanted to there to go to the movement or whatever. And I think that's the way the Reconstructionist movement in general tries to, to operate. So a characteristic of the Reconstructionist movement, NKI, as one of those congregations I hear you saying, is that leadership is truly about service, exactly. about wanting to serve the good of the community and is not about power and control, and um, which is exactly right what a lot of this Parsha is about. So I'm glad that that is your experience of Reconstructionism, and I think it is absolutely characteristic of both the movement and of KI. I agree. All right, go to your next handout that I gave you. That is by Rabbi Alex Israel, yes, of Pardes. Drop down to where it says Shiur, the lesson. 
And he says that this has always puzzled him, this flowering staff business. After the extreme measures taken to put an end to the Korach revolt, Aharon's flowering staff is an unexpected change. In this, quote, sign, no one dies. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his Torah Shirim takes this in a clearly pacifistic direction. The use, Laura, of force never ends a conflict. It merely adds grievance to injury. And this goes to Rita, what, when I asked you to hang on to that, right, that idea, why do we keep using war when it doesn't work? The use of force never ends a conflict. It merely adds grievance to injury. Even the miracle of the ground opening up and swallowing his opponents did not secure for Moses the vindication he sought. What ended the conflict was something else altogether. The visible symbol that Aaron was the chosen vehicle of the God of life. The gentle miracle of the dead wood that came to life again, flowering and bearing fruit. So to this idea, Rita, I mean, Rita, yes, Rita. So what would there have been a possibility of the flowering staff working before the people, the 250 were blown up and or all those other people swallowed, I think becomes one of the reasons war continues when it's truly about conflict and not just about, not, not about conflict. Some wars are just because I want to take your minerals, right, and I'll do what it takes to get them. Other other wars, right, are about other things that I wonder if the justification isn't without that without a physical victory, there isn't the possibility to then bring them to the table to talk about. In other words, look at Syria, right? How many of us are like we we, can't, we we're going to talk to them? Like, what's what's the alternative if we don't do something physically? to beat them back and make them listen what will bring them to the table. That's where I get stuck also, right, is... The history of Israel is, is full of fights and talking. Fights and talking. Talking alone is not doing it, and many times there's not even an option. So this is, I think, where we get stuck. And the order of this, that it could never, as it the first, could never come first. The human condition wouldn't allow it to work. So, I, you know, it's the part that continues to trouble me about human nature is that, you know, sometimes it it, it isn't going to work to say this is stupid, right, you know. Violence is stupid. It doesn't work. Let's come to the table and figure this out. And it's just, it's a, it's a frustrating part of human nature that we don't, we don't, hopefully someday, if we are truly evolving, my hope, and otherwise let's just close up shop now. I have to hope, which is why I do what I do for a living. I have to hope that if we really grow and we really try and we really dig and we really expose ourselves to our wisdom traditions and our values and our ethics and our practices that keep us from our instincts to lash out and be selfish and destructive maybe right like i have to believe we can evolve humanity can evolve to a place where we're going to get it because if not i'm pretty clear about what the alternative is i mean and you know the pope is too right that lot well, I'm not trying to put myself on the level of the Pope, but right. Um, um, that all the people are holy, right? Um, is that if if we don't figure it out, it's pretty clear the planet will not survive our species being the top species, right? We're 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 gonna kill each other and the planet, and th- there has to be some hope that we can we can do it differently and that we can figure this out. Um, so let's close, um, turn over that page that, that I just, that we just read from. Alex Israel's talking about Moshe's staff, right? That we've seen Moshe's staff work as this kind of agent of liberation from Mitzrayim. 
right? With all the plagues and the parting of the sea, it's always the staff that he uses, right? To trigger the, the miracle or the oat. But it seems, right? It seems that that's not enough. Yitziat Mitzrayim is not enough. It happened so fast that the people didn't get a chance to adjust. Right? The slavery to all of a sudden free happened so fast that they did not have a chance to catch up. Look in the, look in the middle of the paragraph of, of the big paragraph of Moses' staff. Maybe this sprouting staff business is a symbol that the process is still underway. That the work begun at Yetziat Mitzrayim, the going out from Egypt, has still to flower. And that Moshe's stick, far from being dead and lifeless, is alive and progressing and producing fruit. Last sentence of that paragraph. This is an essential rejection of Korach's claims that Moshe is unsuitable for leadership. And yet... Maybe the staff says something about the texture of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Moshe's staff is an almond branch. And as we all know, the almond blossom is the first to bloom, the first tree to bring out its sign of life. The almond tree represents chipazon, the seed of redemption. And this speed, and this seed is a double-edged sword. It is the source of our success. We emerged from Egypt partially because it was such a quick process. People were swept up in the exodus. But the problem of Yetziat Misraim is that when change happens that fast, people have not had time to accommodate that new situation and the new realities. Maybe the flowering staff reminds people just how far they've come in a short time and gives people patience to hold out for the long haul. We are still in the long haul. Humanity just emerged from monkeys in evolutionary terms, yesterday afternoon. Literally, yesterday afternoon. Or tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> or tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> and, and, right, that, that we are still, you know, that, that there is consciousness like this is new. It's the first time that we know of the universe is conscious of itself. I want to leave us on this note of hope that maybe this staff is about, okay, yeah, that happened, you know, with the crossing of the sea, when, when we stood upright and went, whoa, we can see <laughs> over the grass, right? Yay. And starts developing all this, you know, big brain and language and all of that. Great. That's Yitziat Mitzrayim. Well, guess what? That's pretty new. And we as a species haven't yet accommodated that change. And we still have all of this animal History working in here, right? All of the systems that allowed us to evolve to this place. Let's take a deep breath, right? And let's see if we can't hang on, right? And direct things so that we have a flowering of that staff. Um, and let's, let's hang in there for the long haul and trust that fruition, uh, and, and the beauty that comes from it, the fruitfulness, the nourishment that comes from it is truly possible. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.